Appendix N Podcast, Episode 40, The Dweller in Darkness and the House on Kerwin Street by August Derleth. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we go looking for that which was not meant to be found. The lost stories of the authors that appeared in Appendix N of the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, meant to serve as inspirational reading for those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. Fly away on the back of a winged horror from beyond the stars, but don't forget to drink your space mead. For those of you listening at home, you are encouraged to read along with us and send us your comments. Listen to the end of the episode for some of the stories we'll be discussing on future episodes. And email your thoughts to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Before we begin the show proper, here's a word from our sponsor. Ah! Hey, it's me, Snurg! I don't really like Noble Knights that much, but NobleKnight.com is okay by me. You know why? They got tons of products for me where I can just be hiding in dungeons and stuff like that. Also, it's it's really, really cool. I get to find all these bestiaries that I can fill my dungeon with and all kinds of goblin miniatures. So check out Noble Knight. They'll even buy old gaming products that you aren't using anymore, and they're awesome. NobleKnight.com. Make sure you tell them the Tome Show sent you. And we're back. Once again, I'm Jeffrey Wynn, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. And as always, I am thrilled to be here. And uh, returning guest, uh, Lewis Brenton. Thanks for having me again. Glad to be here with you all. Nice to see you, Lewis, or, or hear you. And joining us for uh, the first time is uh, Jeff's friend from college, Mike Grasso. Yeah, hi. Uh, uh, good to be on the podcast. I'm um, very excited to talk about these stories and very excited to be a part of this entire Appendix N project. He, oh, also, he's my friend from grad school, I should clarify. That's true, yes. I, I was not in grad school with Jeff, but I, w- I became friends with him while he was in grad school here in Boston, not I, at Miskatonic, at, uh, at Tufts University. Right, I, was in, I was in grad school for a long time. <laughs> so, Mike, since you've never been on Appendix N before, would you mind taking a moment and explaining to us uh, your personal history with specifically Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, well, that, that, that'd be a fun thing to do. It would take a long time to tell the entire story, but I, I did. Yeah, just, I, just a little capsule thing. Highlights, yes. I started playing when I was about 12, I think, with the Red Box and then got into AD&D First Edition Right before second edition came out. So I basically hopped from edition to edition in the three years I was in uh, junior high and early high school. Um, so I started playing probably around 87. And geez, I mean, I, I totaled up how many campaigns have I run in, in my life? Probably upwards of about maybe 12 or 15 different D&D campaigns. And that's leaving aside the other dozens of other role playing games I've run. I'm, I'm typically the GM of my group. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess I've been gaming for almost 30 years at this point. Have you done very much D and D in the last, um, is since third edition? Um, I did, I was part of a, uh, fourth edition game when that first came out. I have not yet played fifth. Um, I, I've been kind of focused on Onyx Path, World of Darkness games over the past decade or so. Um, but, uh, I, I ran a fourth edition Dark Sun game. I, uh, uh, ran a couple of fourth edition, uh, one shots, 
So I, I've I've been I've been staying in touch with D and D over its long and storied history. I'd have to say. I fondly recall a Planescape one shot that you ran in probably two thousand five. Yes, uh, where I where wherein I was the world's saddest Modron. Oh yeah, you were the sad Modron. I remember that. Yeah, oh, man, I um, love Modrons. <laughs> I love Planescape. I um, that's actually one of the more recent games. We ran a thirteenth age Planescape game using the um, uh, uh, factions as icons, and that worked out pretty damn well, actually. Are are you going to pick up uh, Torment Tides of Numenera? I actually already have, I, and the thing is, I have not gotten a chance to get really stuck into it yet. But uh, I'm very pleased, and it's actually got me wanting to dig out my Numenera and the Strange books again because uh, I really, really like that system quite a bit, and it works really well as a video game. So I, in my you know couple of hours of play, I would I would highly recommend picking it up. Nice. Uh, if only if only I had. Uh... <laughs> If only I had an extra eight hours in my day. Every every day I could I could get through all the things that I that I want to do. So many RPGs and video games and things coming out. I actually re- recently started watching uh, anime again. Now that I'm doing a Sailor Moon podcast. By the way, I'm doing a Sailor Moon podcast. It's called the Sailor Moon Silver Podcast. You can find it on uh, iTunes. So uh, to our one listener, if you're also a Sailor Moon fan. <laughs> <laughs> go listen to that podcast sir I, well, or ma'am we don't know yeah. uh, I, I gotta say i'm a little concerned i'm a little concerned that our listener may skip this episode though since we already covered derlith to a certain extent in a past episode they may just be like well, what what more is there to say well, that's oh, okay. I'll, be, I'll be mentioning my, my other podcast uh entice them <laughs> okay uh so tonight we are talking about Two more stories from uh, August Derleth, the uh, the successor question mark to uh, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, we were going to talk about three stories, uh, but the the third one I had planned, Lurker at the Threshold, turned out to be a novel. Uh, so, <laughs> I, so I I had not done my research uh, thoroughly, and uh, I I did not uh, I I was not able to get access to Lurker at the Threshold in time, and Jeff Wickstrom tells me it's not a very good story anyway. So <laughs> uh, we are just going to be talking about two stories tonight. The first is uh, The House on Kerwin Street, uh, which was published in Weird Tales in March of 1944. The original title was The Trail of Cthulhu, and the story went on to become the first of the uh, five-part story arc, uh, and, and uh, later published in a in a novel, and and the whole thing was called the Trail of Cthulhu. But the first part just became the House on Kerwin Street, uh, and then we're also going to talk about uh, the Dweller in Darkness, which was also published in Weird Tales in November of the same year, 1944. Um, so let's begin with the House on Kerwin Street, which. Uh, introduces us to uh, possibly one of one of the more memorable. Uh, in fact, you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna um, uh, qu- qualify that. Introduces us to one of the more memorable characters I've encountered in uh, Appendix N, Laban Shrewsbury. Yes, he is awesome. He, he well, he definitely makes an impression, and awesome is maybe a good word for him. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I love this guy. He is uh, 
he I had not before we started working on the Durleth materials, I had not read any Durleth before. I'd been a big fan of of uh, Lovecraft for years, of course, but uh, I wasn't familiar with what Durleth had contributed to the mythos. And I've enjoyed all the stuff we've done. But uh, this particular thing, man, this is, in my mind, where we have jumped into how the uh, – where we've jumped into modern gaming's sense of the Cthulhu mythos. is Ab- Absolutely. I think yeah. that that's, that's very true. Um, I think that it's easy to look at Laban Shrewsbury and say this is a guy who just does not fit in the Lovecraft um, theme, right? The 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 sure. – the, the protagonist who is is completely overwhelmed by um, the the horrors of the outer darkness, but within the context of you know action heroes, uh, Shrewsbury fits right in. He he could easily be a uh, compatriot of Hellboy's. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is a. Uh, I immediately thought when I was reading this that man, surely this has been converted into an old Call of Cthulhu role playing game adventure at some point because it's it's what it is. It's exactly that. So much of the Call of Cthulhu, the RPG, like just the base rules, really confused the heck out of me when I read them for the first time in high school, and I had read Lovecraft but not Durleth. And reading the, um, a lot of these stories, especially the house on Kerwin Street, it really is just like everything coming together and being like, oh, that is what this is trying to do. That is what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everything about this story vibes RPG. The setup, um, Shrewsbury kind of like uh, assessing Phelan as like he's almost asking him, you know, how many points do you have in this skill? How many points do you have in that skill? And uh, Shrewsbury himself kind of, you know, gives you the impression of a PC who in the modern parlance might have like two katanas and all extra powers that the GM kind of let them have in a in a, in a fit of, um, of uh, you know, giving away uh, cool, awesome powers. Yeah, he has no eyes, but he has some kind of radar sense, and he's telepathic, and he can make Bayaki uh, do what he wants. <laughs> are yeah. they? Are they Bayaki? Are we? Do we? Do we? Do we know that? Uh, they're not referred to that as name uh, by name. I don't think. No, but, they're never called that. But I thought that's what they were. What's the What's the thing that that Randolph Carter rides on? Those are by those are identified by name as uh, Bayaki. I think. Hmm. Isn't is it? What's the what's the Santac or the Shantac? Yeah, Shantac. Doesn't he ride on a on a Shantac? Uh, let's see. As I recall, Shantac is Shantacs are spoken of um, in in hushed, ominous tones during the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, and not really uh, gone into detail. Okay, because I, I I remember encountering a Shantac in the fourth volume of the Carrion Crown. Uh, ad, adventure path, so that's that's probably why it, it jumped to the front of my of my mind. Um, yeah, I, it really seems like there there could have been a series of stories all about uh, Laban Laban Shrewsbury, and you know maybe maybe if, if history had gone differently, we'd be reading about the comic book adventures of Randolph Carter teaming up with Laban Shrewsbury to fight uh, cosmic <laughs> horror in instead of you know Spider Man. You know, or 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 the X Men say. Um, uh, didn't Alan Moore do a story like that? <laughs> How many times are we going to say that tonight when we talk about these two stories? 
did did those guys make it make yeah. it into a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? I, I, I've never I've never read League of, of Extraordinary yeah. Gentlemen. Maybe into the back material, like those right. big long sixteen page text uh, bits that that Alan Moore writes at the right, back right. of each. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have yeah. to confess, I've never read every single word of those, but um, yeah, he he likes to pack those full of. Uh, References for Jess and Evans to look up to to uh, do footnotes and uh, annotations for. There's a there's a there's an RPG by, I want to say Kenneth Height, possibly the the guy who does like all the Cthulhu RPGs except for Call of Cthulhu. That that is specifically what if Lovecraft didn't die of stomach cancer and went on to write comic books. That's what I was thinking of. Oh, yes. and wow. I just, I've actually not I, heard of this before. No. I'm pretty sure Ken has has done extensive work for Call of Cthulhu. Um, no, that's that's the 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 only Cthulhu related RPG he has not done any work for. He's he's created his his own RPGs. He created uh, Trail of Cthulhu, but he's he's never written for uh, Call of Cthulhu. Uh, does he not have a writing credit for Horror on the Orient Express? Um. I mean the, that uh, might have changed, but when the I last time I listened to him give a give a talk about it, uh, he said he had not written for Call of Cthulhu. Of, of Cthulhu. Oh, that's so. really interesting. You know, I said times like this that I'm glad that uh, our one reader is probably skipping this episode because <laughs> you know, they'd, they'd be kicking themselves and being like, "No, you idiots!" Uh, <laughs> Ken Hyde did not write horror on the Orient Express. <laughs> right. So describe can can someone describe uh Laban Laban Shrewsbury? Like what is what does he look look sure. like? Well he is first of all, he is the the prototype of all of our modern gaming like the in uh, Arkham Horror or Eldritch Horror or uh, Elder Sign, those those games. He is the mm-hmm. he's the Cthulhu Mythos wizard character. Yeah, he's a he is a guy who has tapped into the dark powers that he is fighting against and is drawing on some of them I, and using, using powers from that world to fight other powers in that world. I, I basically imagine this guy looking like, like doc Brown with sun sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty much how I, uh, how I imagined him too. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually pretty close. Yeah. He, uh, I, I kind of mixed him with uh, the guy that played the devil character in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? because of the sunglasses. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of had the same thing going on. Or indeed Gary Oldman's uh, Dracula from uh, uh, the Francis Ford Coppola uh, sure. early 90s version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's <laughs> um, right. yeah. So he, he is a – he is a uh, – He's a Cthulhu Mythos wizard. He is an old professor who vanished for a long period of time and uh, came back 20 years later, if I remember correctly from the story. Nobody knows where he was, but it turns out he was – he had escaped to another world. I don't remember. Had he escaped to the other world or he had been drawn into that other world? He'd spent the time in Solano where they yeah. took his eyes, but they he, but he got superpowers. Right, yeah. He had studied in, in their library, in their big mythic library, and came back with all kinds of knowledge and – and is kind of doing almost a Doctor Strange right, writer of wrongs thing now, fighting the evil powers in his world. Yeah, I mean the 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 story is called House on Kerwin Street, and he's he's almost like a like a heroic version of Joseph Kerwin. He's he's tapped into the mythos. He's he's borrowing their their powers, but he seems to be uh, using it to seal seal the gates that allow the great great old ones to enter our. Uh, plane of existence, which which is very much the plot of the board game Arkham Horror. And... Exactly that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, he, he even uses the the uh, elder sign. He's got a stone with a with a five pointed uh, star on it. And in in Arkham Horror, you're you're trying to get to to get these things because that's how you how you permanently seal gates. That's right. So maybe we should, before we delve any further into this, talk about the the actual plot of House on Kerwin Street, um, mm. such as sure. it is. Yeah. Well, it starts with uh, with our. Now is is Andrew Phelan the protagonist, or is he just the point of view character and is Labor <laughs> the protagonist? How do how do we think about this? Uh, I'm comfortable yeah. calling him the protagonist. Okay, so Andrew's the protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. So Andrew. Uh, responds to a job uh, posting uh, and ends up becoming his uh, ends up becoming Laban Shrewsbury's personal secretary and occasional bodyguard. And fortunately he also has access to jujitsu. Now I have no idea how anybody in that time period in America has access to jujitsu, but cool. He he wrote it uh, on his, on his character sheet. He he asked the GM if his character could know jujitsu and and the GM said, said yes. So this is so horribly true. You're right. (laughs) But this gets me thinking about something, Jeff Wickstrom, that you said in the last Durleth uh, episode of Appendix M, which was about uh, Solar Ponds and his his Holmes fandom. And mm-hmm. didn't Holmes have his unique uh, martial art that he had uh, mastered? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. Yes. Yeah, very much so. So I mean, yeah, I, I look at Shrewsbury. He's, he's kind of Holmesian, except you know, it's not about deduction as much as it's about just wielding awesome, you know, mystical powers. But like. This is a very Holmes Watson kind of relationship when you think about it. Oh, it's very much so. It's Holmes Watson. It's the Doctor and the Companion. You know, we, yeah. we have we have someone. We have one character who knows exactly what's going on, and someone who has no idea what's going on, so that it can be explained to him, and we can overhear that conversation and follow the story. Well, yeah, I, I would love to. I would love to jump in at this point and mention uh, in Lurker at the Threshold how the entire last third of the book is a conversation between a thinly veiled Holmes and Watson uh, keyed into the mythos, just explaining for the Holmes explaining for the benefit of the reader, the first two thirds of the story. (laughs) Um, Only Holmes in that book is not, he's not called uh, Laban Shrewsbury. He's called Seneca Latham, which very similar, but uh, definitely not the same name. Mm. Well, except that that Laban, like until the very end, doesn't really explain anything to the to the pro protagonist, and he 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 kind of spends most of the story lying to the to the protagonist and keeping That's him right. yeah. in the dark yeah. and and even drugging him, uh, and then and then <laughs> lying about what what happened. Well, so. let's be honest here. Shrewsbury's kind of a sleaze. I mean, he the very first thing he asks, um, you know, Andrew to do is go in the other room and eavesdrop in this conversation and take very good notes. I mean, and, and you know, I, I think I think Andrew knows he's going to get up to some skullduggery on this job. But like, you know, this is like right off right after being hired. You know, he's being asked to do all kinds of things that a gentleman wouldn't necessarily do in this in this particular era. Yeah, it's within minutes of being hired. 
Yeah, yeah literally in minutes. That's right. <laughs> and in doing this, Laban Shrewsbury is being, again, very much like what Doctor Who is frequently accused of, of he just, he takes people, he's got a goal in mind and he knows he's going to have to use people to accomplish that goal. And he leaves broken people in his wake <laughs> in that <laughs> sense. You know? Yeah. So, well, I mean, Shrewsbury kind of tried to insulate uh, Felon against that specifically by not telling him anything. And right. when he hired Felon, which he did via a personals ad, which seems uh, kind of weird and, perhaps skeevy uh he said specifically that he wanted somebody with limited imagination yeah that's um, right <laughs> and then in the in the interview he says you may wonder about my insistence about lack of imagination which is kind of ironic because if felon did indeed lack imagination he wouldn't wonder about that and indeed he doesn't <laughs> seem to up to that point yeah that's right and he wants he, uh, he wants somebody with a low idea role basically <laughs> you know he wants somebody who's not going to be able to put all the pieces together if sure. so long as you're paying me i'll believe whatever you say right right, <laughs> right yeah. and that's very much within within the mythos that makes a lot of sense because what that immediately reminded me of was the the very beginning of call of cthulhu uh, which has really my favorite sentence in all of lovecraft stuff where he says the the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and and later on in this story, uh, near the end, we're gonna hear an excerpt from uh, Doctor Shrewsbury's book where he's gonna specifically say, uh, "What is the line?" He said, "I've got it marked here." He's gonna specifically say that knowledge is power, but knowledge is also madness, mm-hmm. and it is not for the weak to take arms against these hellish beings. And so, yeah, he's kind of he wants to cushion uh, Andrew from the stuff that's that he's going to be exposed to because he knows how how close it'll push him to the breaking point. But he must regretfully recruit his help nonetheless and and drag him through this. And uh, it's just, yeah, very modern Cthulhu mythos. He knows it's going to cost his his minion some sanity points and he doesn't want to do it. And uh, Mm. but it's got to get done. Yeah, well, like I like I said in the previous Sterlith episode, I feel that a lot of the stuff that we think of as like your classic Cthulhu mythos stuff is really coming out of these Sterlith stories. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. So we get we get introduced to I I think it's supposed to be Space Mead in this in yes. this book. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, again, like this is this is where we see that. Uh, uh, Philon is that the, that the guy's name is 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 really just sort of accepting of whatever Laban Laban <laughs> says because because uh, Laban says tonight uh, we're gonna drink uh, a drop of this liquor I made and then we're gonna go right to bed and that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's not creepy. Yeah, and that's and that's all that's that's gonna happen. Don't worry about anything thing else. And then uh, the the same night, uh, 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 Andrew. I'm gonna call him him Andrew. Uh, has a has what he thinks is a dream of going on this adventure to South South America, and they they find this underground cave where people are worshiping uh, Cthulhu, and there's this big giant tentacle jelly thing which really reminded me of um, the N64 game um, Eternal Darkness, which which I think that was supposed to be that was supposed to be Cthulhu, uh, if if not a servitor. 
Uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, Shrewsbury asks one of the, the cultists and says, hey, we're here for the apocalypse. And the cultist says, oh, no, this is just the apocalypse tech rehearsal. The actual apocalypse isn't happening until tomorrow. <laughs> and so they have to go back the next night uh, uh, to, to actually uh, blow the place up with dynamite. So, right. well, yeah, yeah. And and Laban, Laban does it all all by him himself. But Andrew wakes up and his his shoes, shoes are gone. And and uh, Laban explains that he he uh, came into Andrew's room in the middle of the night, removed his shoes, and took took them to have them cleaned. And Andrew just like <laughs> also not creepy at all. But but our our hero uh, just uh, accepts this as uh, all part of the job. You know, I'm picturing the modern retelling of this story where. Andrew answers an ad on Craigslist and then goes to this guy's house and gets drugged and wakes up without his shoes on. I mean, it could it could work in 2017 if you if you tweaked enough of the bits, uh, it would work really well. But yes, it's it, it's just it's just amazing. It, it it it's so Deus ex machina, sort of like let's get the characters from one scene to the next. Again, very RPG in a lot of ways. It's just it's it's deeply silly in a way that I didn't really notice when I was reading it. I was kind of aware that it was silly, but when you try to describe it to some, when you recount what it is that happens, it's just it's cartoonish, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, the silliest thing to me is is the 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 ending. We're we're supposed to believe that this this entire story is is from a a manuscript that that was that that was found so andrew was was writing all of this this down and the at at the end of the story we we learn that andrew is is fleeing for for his his life because the because the mythos is is after him and he's just blown the whistle to 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 summon his 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 ride so this entire thing was written between the time that he blew the whistle and when his weird flying creature showed up. And it's, it's, it's full of like accurately copied uh, uh, summaries from his, his, his psych e- evaluation that he, he went to a, to a doctor for. My, my, fav- my favorite part of that, by the way, is when um, Shrewsbury <laughs> takes Andrew to London to interrogate a guy. Yeah, and uh, uh, the guy is not—he's not responsive uh, when people are asking him questions, and so Shrewsbury starts talking to him in the secret language of Rella, <laughs> and he—he he perks up at that, and they have a little bit of dialogue, and somehow uh, Andrew is able to to translate that, mm-hmm. um, and also somehow the guy knows the latitude and longitude of Rella. Um, that well, he, he, washed, that he, he read from. he read the the Call of Cthulhu because everyone in this universe has 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 a copy of the the Outsider and and others on their shelf <laughs> available at a very reasonable price from Arkham Press. No, Arkham yes, <laughs> <laughs> they even call it by name, Arkham Press. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love I love how in in both of these tales, love you know Lovecraft is mentioned as you know you know. Alongside, you know, Ab- Abdul Al Al Hazred, and all all the others as as one of these learned scholars who was secretly passing along uh, mythos information and encoded into his quote fictional stories. Yeah, I mean, Great is this is is Einstein Lovecraft? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he calls him what that great modern master of the macabre. It's like something a horror host would have said in the 1950s on TV. 
I, I wonder, is this the first instance of um, Lovecraft being portrayed as someone who actually did peer beyond and, like, you know, knew all these stories and, like, the first instance of Lovecraft being a character either, you know, sort of referred to or actually in a story? Because it's become almost like a tradition in post-Lovecraft uh, literature to have Lovecraft appear as uh, a real person in the universe that the narrator is, uh, you know, involved in. Well, yeah, think... he was in uh, the Scooby-Doo Mysteries, Inc. cartoon. Oh, God. As I recall. <laughs> <laughs> well, Durlith, Durlith did this in, in, in I think, the, the other stories that we that we did for yeah for we Appendix brought that N. up last time yeah that's right and that was a good five uh, five years before House on Kerwin Street was uh, okay. published so maybe he, well maybe he started this tradition and then other people have followed along with it maybe yeah. this is the yeah the yeah. first domino in that chain of doing that uh, I mean if 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 only Lovecraft had thought as highly of himself as as uh, Durlith did maybe maybe you know he would have taken better care of himself and and not died and gone on to write uh better stories maybe but... he maybe he wouldn't have eaten cat food and uh refused to go see a doctor yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there's a certain sort of like if you're the first person to tell a story you become the authority it's like a saint paul kind of thing you know if you if you kind of you know bring the the uh the the good news of of, of a particular writer mm-hmm. you become that person's executor almost you know and it feels like I, I, you know, I know Durlith gets a lot of, you know, flack and probably rightfully so for a lot of his stylistic and and sort of like universe building choices. But um, I think also for his contemporaries, they're probably who, who are also working and toiling in this sort of Cthulhu mythos fields. Like there's probably a little bit of jealousy, too, because it does seem like, you know, it does seem like uh, Durleth kind of like, you know, took over the neighborhood, as it were, and kind of became the. Uh, uh, sort of the the big landlord of the Cthulhu mythos, and mm-hmm. sort of you know protected that legacy, um, uh, such as it was. Yeah, I mean, if it, yeah, if that it wasn't draws, for that, can draw some some resentment from certain people in the community sometimes. What were you going to say, sure. Jeff? I, I was going to say if it if it if it wasn't for Durlith, we we might not know about Love Lovecraft today. He, he might be one of those uh, for forgotten forgotten authors like A. Merritt. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I know Jeff uh, Wickstrom has talked to me about A Merit at some point, and I, 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 that's probably the only way I know about A Merit. Yeah. So. Well, you know, that just goes to show that the our our secret lis- our, our secret listener, who now I'm envisioning is wearing like a black mask. Um, you you are not that person, Mike. Yeah, yeah. No. I think I think we did we did what three episodes on on A A Merit, and I I mean I liked all his stories they they were not classics by 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 any means but they were they were fertile ground for uh coming up with ad, adventure i i they were and, a lot more readable than many of uh many of his contemporaries yeah mm. yeah now has anybody read the rest of the trail of cthulhu material yet i read it once in high school or college because um, it's my understanding that this is kind of the kickoff of several chain stories all about fighting Cthulhu and that Shrewsbury is going to show up in more of them. Is that right? What I remember is that the other four stories in Trail of Cthulhu are basically this story again mm-hmm. with very slight changes. Gotcha. That, that, that seems very Durlith. Yeah. yeah it's just oh, yeah. Variations well, sure. on yeah. a theme. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Well, I'm, I was really curious and I'm looking forward to it because like I said, I hadn't read any of his stuff before we started doing this and I'm going to read the rest of that stuff because I was very excited. I, I enjoyed this story more than any of the other Duralist stuff that we've done. Yeah. I invite you to call the Tome Show Bizline and, uh, you know, exhort to our mystery <laughs> listener about, uh, about the rest of the, the many virtues of the rest of the storyline. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, you, you beat me to it. That's, that's kind of what the, what the Bizline is for is, uh, picking up, picking up what we, what we can't cover in, in, in the actual show. Um, all right. Should I, we, is I, I, I had, oh, go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. I was going to say it is kind of tempting to do like a spinoff podcast that is just talking about Durleth. Um, <laughs> But I, I feel like that's a little beyond the, the uh, the mandate of the Tome Show Network. Yeah. So I had one observation I wanted to make before we move on. It was basically about sort of the the idea that they go on these you know missions all across the world using the Bayaki and the Space Mead and everything. And you know I was thinking about it today as I was kind of comparing Lovecraft's own phobias with what seemed to be Durleth's sort of obsessions and and maybe not phobias, but you know, things that are, you know, sort of on front of mind for him. And this idea, I, I think that the sort of one time that Andrew kind of fails a sand check is when he sees the newspaper from London and he's like, there's no way that newspaper could have gotten here in less than 24 hours. And that's the moment where everything kind of starts to break for him. And I wonder if Durleth had kind of, you know, this is the 1930s, the 1940s. This is when like the world is becoming much smaller, uh, air travel, radio transmissions is making the world into a much smaller place. And I'm wondering if, you know, just how like Lovecraft had the anxieties about, you know, Einstein's relativity and like, you know, uh, all the facts of science breaking down. Did Durleth, who is from a small town in Wisconsin, did he start to have some kind of anxiety or phobia about the world becoming much, much smaller? And did that come out in his writing as this sort of the thing that broke my sanity was that we flew back from Peru and from London in a single night, you know, it, it's, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things that kind of struck me as I thought about it. That is hmm. interesting. If you think about it, if you look at call of Cthulhu, which maybe house on Kerwin street, most directly echoes, uh, call of Cthulhu takes place over the course of months or years. Sure. Yeah, uh, depending yeah. on how you're, how you're counting time. And, uh, uh, you know, it takes, it takes place all over the globe, but, for the information to to trickle out and get around takes you know many many years interviews newspaper reports uh, police detectives et cetera mm. et cetera whereas House on Kerwin Street Shrewsbury is he's globe trotting he's a he's a jet setter he's getting yeah. from um, Miskatonic to Peru from Miskatonic mm. to London uh, from Miskatonic to the Great Library of Solano. <laughs> Um, and, and maybe, and I say that as if that's a, a comedic triple, but maybe those things are kind of of a piece, mm. right? Is it any more miraculous to go to an extra dimensional mega library, uh, than it is to go to London? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of what I was thinking of too. Like I said, it, these anxieties that we talk about with Lovecraft, the one, the really popular ones, the, you know, the, the fear of the female and the fe- and the fear of, you know, the unknown and science breaking down, like, with Durlet, it's a different set, a much more homely set of concerns. But I think there's still like there's room to psychoanalyze uh, Durlet himself, even if his fears are a little bit more innocent and a little bit more sort of prosaic. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I was well, going to say that uh, you make a good point in that Shrewsbury lives apparently in a world that is completely free of women. But mm-hmm. in point of fact, there is a female character in this, um, Asenath Devoto. 
yeah, his, uh, his, oh, yeah. his therapist, his therapist yeah. is has, shares a name with Asenath Waite of the thing on the doorstep, right. uh, which okay. Lovecraft, Lovecraft's only female character. Yeah. Well, now, other other than the uh, mother of um, mm, of Watley. Uh, well, yeah, the Watleys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Watley thing. Yeah, uh, that's Lavinia. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you want, well, if you want to go there, if you want to bring up yeah. Lavinia Waitley, well, <laughs> to, to, to chase to chase Mike's thought just a little bit more. Um, you know, we 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 have recognized in uh, in Lovecraft stuff some some thinly veiled and not so thinly veiled racism going on. Sure. Okay. Um, in a world where travel is easier and exposure to other cultures happens much more quickly and the world is becoming more cosmopolitan in that way, you know, surely that freaked him out in some ways too. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. That, that's part of his world getting shaken by the, by the, by modern technology. And yeah, and we can talk about this more with the next story, but I, I do feel like Duraleth has a little bit more, cosmopolitanness when it comes to I mean he's still using a lot of tropes that are problematic but he is in no way close to what Lovecraft had as far as attitudes towards non-white uh, people you know it, it, there, there's still some stereotyping but it's but these characters are actually a little more fleshed out you know in Durleth yes should we should we move on to uh, Dweller yeah by all means, by all means. Let's do that. That's a. It's funny that we ended on that point since this is the most racial, racist, offensive thing I, I've seen in Durla's stuff so far. Is his description of uh, of what's that character's name? Old Peter. Is that right? Mm. Oh, the, the half breed. Uh, yeah, the half breed. Half <laughs> half Saxon, half Anglo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's is that what he meant? That's what he is. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So, uh, Dweller. Um, yeah, I I said Dweller was basically sort of Lovecraft by by the numbers, and we've we've even sort of seen this same story by uh, Durleth b- before uh, in I think the the re- return of Hastur. Um, so, this uh, old college professor goes out to this haunted cabin by by the woods, and he disappears. And his friends are worried about him, so they they go they go after him, and there's all sorts of stories. So they so they bring uh, lots of equipment, including uh, recording equipment, uh, and they find a strange stone in the woods, and they find a crazy old guy who uh, tells them all about the the weird creature that appears sometimes, uh, and then they go out to the crazy. To, to, to the old stone in the woods and behold the weird creature does appear and chases them away um i, I think they they get away um i'm, I'm skipping yes. the part where the where, where the creature uh disguises himself as their their old pr- pr- professor friend and like mm. and like tries to fool them into i i i forget what um he he wants them to Think, to think that this was all just a hoax being put on, and he destroys the only physical evidence they have that it's not. Yeah, the cylinders, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so this, 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 it's it's love. It's uh, Durleth's version, pretty obviously, of Whisper and Darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it even has kind of the same same twist at the end, although instead of Migo, there's nothing in particular. Yeah, it's it, it's like Whisper and Darkness, except you can kind of figure out what's happening the entire time and 
the the entity in question is supposed to be Nyarlathotep, one of one of Lovecraft's mm. most most dreaded and and uh, powerful old ones, and he he just sort of appears as this cone-headed blob, and he's not fast enough to catch up with our protagonist as they're running towards the cabin, and instead of just like eating them, he he chooses to disguise himself as the old old professor. So yeah, you know, you know that hadn't even occurred to me, Jeff. Why not just toast these fools? You know, <laughs> well, in Whisper in Darkness, in Whisper in Darkness, it okay. ends as you may recall with the um, the hero going up to visit the uh, the victim. I'm, I'm omitting their names because I don't remember them. Right. And the uh, the victim is behaving very oddly. He keeps his distance from the hero, and he you know sits. Uh, very still, and you know, only his hands and face are visible, and he says a lot of nonsense. And then later, the hero finds like a pair of wax hands and a mask, mm-hmm. and you know, so it, it wasn't really the the victim; it was somebody impersonating the victim. And the obvious um, interpretation is that it was Amigo that was inter- that was impersonating the victim. But it, it's there's a, a there is a competing theory that it was uh, meant to be Nyalar Hotep. Uh, who was being worshipped by the Migo and invoked by them uh, magically in Whisperer in Darkness. Well, I thought... Uh, and I he, thought... So maybe Nyalarhotep, the, the trickster, mm. uh, comes and impersonates the guy, and the Dweller in Darkness is a, is a reflection on that. Mm. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm misremembering, but didn't, didn't in, in Whisperer, they, they put the guy's brain in a, in a jar... Oh and yeah, I, they totally did that. And I, 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 I thought the voice the, the the protagonist was was hearing was was the guy's brain, but but talking through the little speech box in, instead of coming out of his his actual mouth. I think that's very. That's definitely a, a, an alternate interpretation. I think there's basically three ways you can interpret the end of Whisperer in Darkness. Okay. Um, and that's that's two of them right there. Mm. And I've always thought about Yarlat Hotep as sort of the, uh, the the psychopomp and the messenger, sort of very unknowable and mm-hmm. and sort of enigmatic. And but you're right, like something about this just doesn't doesn't quite click on that front. It, it it's almost again not to get into sort of the gaming aspect of this, but when when he, when when the professor comes back, it it struck me as kind of one of the things that I do and kind of pull something out of of nowhere when I'm GMing. And very desperately try to get the get the uh, get the adventure back on track or where I need it to be. It seems like a bit of a of a of a of a reach, let's say. Yeah, it, it's, uh, narratively, it's it's yeah. very uh, Scooby Doo in in reverse. And in, in, instead of a an, an old guy in a in a monster suit, it's a monster in an in an old, old an old guy suit <laughs> guy suit. Yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, Nyarlathotep is supposed to be this this very sinister trickster. You know, like like Loki. You know, in mm-hmm. in one of the adventures that's always included in the back of of Call of Cthulhu is 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 all about this. You know, he gives a cursed uh, trumpet to some some guy in New New Orleans that that makes the dead come come to life. What you know? Why did he do it? You know, just to cause you know just to cause uh, mischief. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. Nyarlathotep. He's kind of mysterious and unknowable, and he. He just kind of hides in the shadows. He doesn't appear as a cone-headed blob and chase you, and chase you badly. Well, how how much of that is in the original Lovecraft, and how much of that is the interpolation from Durleth and others? 
There you go. Yeah. Uh, because when I think of Nerlathotep in Lovecraft, what I think of is the dream quest of Unknown Kadath, mm. where he shows up at the very end of the story and uh, pulls a bizarre and kind of nonsensical prank on both Randolph Carter and the Great Old Ones. And the upshot of it is that they all end up going back to where they were supposed to be. And Nerlathotep laughs at them. Um, because other, other than that, he, he appears very little. I'm looking now at his Wikipedia page and it says that he shows up in dreams of the witch house, which I don't remember at all. And, uh, he's a disembodied, a, a crazy monster in the haunter of the dark. Uh, he's kind of the title character of the haunter of the dark. And he's certainly not a trickster in the haunter of the dark. Um, yeah, he, he gets a passing mention in, in, in the rats in the walls as, as the thing that's at the bottom of you know, that, that, that pit that they, that they find. But yeah, yeah. I'm just, you know, I, I guess, I guess I'm just dis- disappointed that, um, <laughs> that it's a more interesting version of the character than the version that we see here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Is, is the yeah. version that you're thinking of. I mean, I, yeah. I guess the, the, the interesting thing to take away from, from uh, dweller is the, uh, protagonist solved the problem of an, an old one haunting the woods by summoning a different old one to to chase him out they uh, so this this is probably the first appearance of Cthuga. Uh, it is the first appearance of Cthuga, yeah. yeah yeah so derleth derleth has this uh theory that all of the old ones are really uh elementals um because what's what's scarier than uh than what you use to summon captain planet um <laughs> <laughs> Sure. So, uh... <laughs> I mean, shove Nicarath heart. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they the the uh, the heroes can conclude the story by summoning uh, Cthulhu. I mean, uh, sorry, Cthulhu. So all of these uh, fire vampires appear and chase Nyarlathotep out of the woods, and now the woods are free of Nyarlathotep. But you you kind of burn the woods down sure um, they, they uh, let's see this is it's like the episode of the simpsons where they bring in the snakes to get the pigeons and then they have the rats to get the snakes oh, yeah. and the uh, badgers to get the rats and then the bears to get the badgers and then when winter comes the bears will all just die off and, and durleth really likes explosive conclusions doesn't he he really likes to you know, how do you end a story? Dynamite or, you know, fire elementals. The or... best way you end a story, Durleth would say the best way you end a story is with an italicized paragraph that with a lot of exclamation points. <laughs> <laughs> to be very specific, yes. Technically true, yeah, that's right. I mean, re- Return of Haster ended with uh, Haster and Cthulhu wrestling each other got Godzilla style and then being flung into the uh, stratosphere by a hand reaching out from from the stars so the elder guy. Uh, <laughs> lurker at the threshold again I'm, I'm i'm bringing this up uh it ends in a, with a a crazy anticlimax where the sherlock holmes and dr watson analogs go to the the place of evil and then they just shoot the bad guy in the face <laughs> and say, well that's done and then they the story over <laughs> Direct conclusions. That's what Duraleth likes. And, and you yeah. know what? You know the old the old cliche about Cthulhu stories is that you know if you've got a party, you know one person's going to die, one person's going to go mad, maybe two will survive. But these people always win, and it's so disconcerting. You know, I mean, maybe they lose a little something of themselves along the way, but they always 
it's you know this is not you know i i mean here's the thing i i've run cthulhu many many times you know along with the other games we talked about earlier and you know i i this is the one system or the one you know world system where you don't have to pull your punches you know you can just you can just turn your pcs insane and kill them and there's no problem it's it's all right there and durless just completely cuts out the the legs out from under that I think I think the the deadliness of the mythos sort of sort of grew with the legend because I think when we were uh, covering uh, Lovecraft, I I noticed that that the protagonists, you know, didn't didn't die or end up in an asylum as as much as you you tend to think that they do. Mm. Uh, a lot of them, you know, live and you know while while they might be shaken you know they're 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 otherwise fine you know we 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 can assume that they go that they go back to their to to their lives yeah they can bear witness they can write the the story that we're reading basically yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it um, happens a few times very memorably but uh, mm. they, but you know, in the, those the, I'm sorry the, go the, ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say in the Dunwich horror uh you know basically everybody lives happily ever after and evil is defeated mm-hmm. um the shadow over Innsmouth, the main character, this is the big exception, right? It's the one where the main character yeah. uh, turns into a deep one and, and, and goes off. But the reason that that works so well is because it's a departure from the norm, mm. right? If every, if every story ended with the protagonist uh, joining the darkness in that way, then the shadow over Innsmouth would lose a lot of its punch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, mountain, you know, mountains of madness, they're all, they're all haunted by their egg- experience but they've still re- you know ex- except for the ones who died in the ex so the, the, so expedition. the two that survive yeah <laughs> see yeah. what i mean there's a ratio there sure yeah. <laughs> yeah well i think too so maybe the bigger departure between what durlith is doing and what lovecraft is doing isn't so much that the good guys sometimes survive but i think it's more in the lovecraft stories the the protagonists are often along for the ride witnessing what's happening and figuring out what's happening but they're not really interacting with what's happening yeah they're not stopping it or resisting it they're just kind of following along and figuring it out while in the derelith stories at least sometimes the protagonists have stuff to do and and in the in the lovecraft uh tales there there's always the the intimation that no no matter what we do humanity is is doomed in the in in the end we can't we can't win in the in the long run but there's there's none of that here in the in the in the derelith we can we can learn all the spells and we can (laughs) we can summon uh mythos creatures like their pokemon and make them do our our bidding (laughs) and it's fine Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and now that now that we've got the uh, the elder sign thing in hand, that's our crucifix against the monsters. Yeah. You know that they can use to protect themselves from at least the low level minions. So yeah, there's yeah there's a this is a different sort of a thing going on. These are adventurers rather than witnesses yes. and, and uh, tail bearers. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. a crucial aspect to that is the fact that again, not to directly compare Lovecraft and Durleth on a psychological level, but one thing that really struck me about Dweller is how much technology they use between the dictaphone and like these photostats sent from from Miskatonic. Like they're going in, as you said at the beginning, um, Jeff, they, they, they come in equipped and ready to go with top of the line, up to date technology. And if there's one thing we know about Lovecraft, he was that antiquarian. He didn't you know, like the modern world. Durlet's protagonists will use dynamite. They'll use photostats. They'll use dictaphones. 
they'll go in fully equipped to handle whatever might happen. And all I could think of is like, is this the first found footage horror situation mm-hmm. with, you know, technology that's recording something uh, that's unusual and, and supernatural? Uh, obviously, as you said, the, 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 uh, the uh, cylinders get smashed, but it, it, it made me think that this is like the first found footage horror movie almost. Mm. It's interesting to compare. This is something that I, I didn't think about until you brought it up, Mike. Um, I was just annoyed at how nonsensical it is for Gardner to suddenly, in his second week at Rick's Lake, decide that he needs a copy of the Necronomicon and The Outsider <laughs> and Others by H.P. Lovecraft available from Arkham House. And this, this laundry list of mythos tomes. Yeah. Um, yeah. If he if he's so down with the mythos that he can rattle off this laundry list of mythos tomes, why does he need to even send for them? And that's what bothered me. I didn't really think about how different it is from Lovecraft that Gardner was in fact able to send for these things, mm-hmm. and just like via interlibrary loan get uh, get Xerox copies of them. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. how by comparison, when Wilbur Whateley goes to uh, does he go to Harvard or to Miskatonic to get his hands on the Necronomicon? Well, they each have a copy. Harvard's copy is inferior to Miskatonic's, if I remember correctly, from my lore. Um, I just, I, I love the fact, I do work at Harvard, and I just love the fact that, you know, fictionally, there's a copy of the Necronomicon at the bottom of Widener Library. I've always found that really charming. Um, it's, but it's, it's, I think it's the John D. translation at Harvard. It's the, um, the, uh, the sort of... Which is, which is in English and therefore inferior. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So Miskatonic's got the better original version with all of the you know various languages, the pre-human right, but, languages as they call them. Yeah, but to get to it, it even to get to the into the Gardner Library, you have to uh, Widener Library. You have to uh, to demonstrate some credentials. You have to get past mm. the uh, you know iron iron bearded uh, librarians and professors have to vet you, and they eventually mm-hmm. turn over Whateley away, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's a that's a very different situation than. You see here with with Gardner, who can just uh, can just send a yeah. send it out out for it in the mail. Yeah, well, yeah, Gardner scan it and send you a PDF. I know it's <laughs> great. Yeah. Well, Gardner Gardner has the has the credentials. He's a he's a published university scholar. That's that's true. That's true. Yeah, but uh, the idea that that yeah. again, it's so easy to get a, a photographic copy of a book. I mean, I can't imagine Lovecraft ever putting that in one of his stories. But Durlet's like, well, if you can if it can be done. Why shouldn't it be done in this kind of fictional situation? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just I read Dweller in Darkness and I get annoyed by all of Dirtless little terrible stylistic ticks. Like we're told about how suggestive something is, which does not actually make it suggestive. <laughs> um, is the long intho dumps where Professor Partier just says all kinds of cool stuff that Durlith knows he isn't a good enough author to write. And so he just kind of summarizes it for us. <laughs> But we get have... the we 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 get the sound of wind without the trees moving again, which like didn't didn't we get that in in, in a bunch yeah, of the was, stories? Yeah, that was that was both of the Ithaca stories. You have to admit though, Jeff, his, yeah. uh, Durlet's prose really comes alive when he starts talking about like the local legends and sort of the, you know, you can tell he's much more comfortable t- talking about Wisconsin than he is about you know, uh, you know, Lovecraft country out in New England. Oh yeah. Heads and shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. got, we got another Wendigo mention in, in here. Don't, don't we? Yes, that's right. And yeah. I think, I think you wanted to say something about that, Michael. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that Duralith does really well, I think is, and I like this in my, in my Cthulhu mythos stuff is I like 
melding real life, real world myths with the mythos, because mm-hmm. I think that increases the verisimilitude of sort of, you know, these entities have been on Earth for millions and millions of years. And all of these myth cycles have kind of been absorbed into these different cultures all over the world. And and it even happens in good old normal Wisconsin in this, you know, you've got mentions of the Hodag, which is an actual um, cryptozoological beast that haunts the uh, forests of northern Wisconsin. Uh, I think it ended up being a tourist trap, though. It was like the Fiji mermaid. It was like a boar with a with a, you know, something glued onto it or something like that. But it, but it took on this sort of like, you know, legendary sort of, you know, I think he mentions Paul Bunyan in here or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's, you know, Durleff obviously loves his home state. And he and he kind of, the, the, the first two stories that we hear about, uh, you know, Big Bob Hiller and the, um, uh, and the Catholic, the French Catholic priest. I mean, what, what, what that got me thinking of more than anything else was like all those bits of Stephen King where he just goes into these really, really old, deep main rural legends, you know what I mean? And kind of like mm-hmm. fleshes out the environment you're about to enter and makes it come alive. And, you know, Wisconsin's a weird place. I mean, Jeff, I didn't I, I didn't realize your wife was from Wisconsin when I started thinking about this. But, <laughs> but you know, Durleth wrote a book called, um, oh, geez, what was it called? Uh, Wisconsin Murders about famous murder cases in Wisconsin. And that was in 1968. And then a few years after that, the Wisconsin death trip came out, which is a very famous sort of underground book that has all these creepy photos of turn of the last century Wisconsinites. And so, I mean, Wisconsin's also got Ed Gein and Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, it's sort of a, it, it can, it can be those forests up there can be kind of creepy. And I think, I think Durleth does a fantastic job evoking that. Well, Dweller in Darkness starts with uh, really what's kind of a, a Dunwich horror homage of this oh, oh, yeah. establishing establishing the place. And I was I, I with powered with the internet, I, I went and I, I I dug into it, and it's a, it's a mix of real pl- real places and things and imaginary places and things. Right. The he mentions the Brule River. The Brule River is real. Uh, Rick's Lake is not on the Wisconsin Depart- Department of Natural Resources website where they have an index of thousands and thousands of lakes. Yes. Uh, they talk about the town of Pashapapo, which is a local Indian tribe in the area, but it's not a town. Talk about uh, Schwamagon Bay, which is an actual place. Talk about uh, Wausau, which is an actual place. If you triangulate all of the things together, mm. uh, the story is, I think, meant to be set in Schwamagon National Forest. Uh, okay. Which is, it, which is a a specific spot in Wisconsin. All of the all of the real geography matches up, um, but there's there's enough fakeness that you can't really be certain. And I have to I have to assume Derleth did that on purpose. And this yeah. was an area where he displayed really more craft than Lovecraft often did. Mm. I mean, that, and again, just to bring up Stephen King again, that there's your dairy in Castle Rock. They don't actually exist, but yeah. you can you can triangulate them by you know f- seeing how close Bangor and Augusta are, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I think it 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 in, invites you to find the ad- adventure seeds in your in your own back backyard. I mean, any mm. any place on Earth that has a history is is going to have its share of of weirdness and strange. Uh, local local uh, local legends. I mean, K- Chaosium has a whole series of, of of books, 
you know, detailing various parts parts of the world, and 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 giving them the same uh, treatment that that Lovecraft gave to his Massachusetts and and uh, Derleth gave to his Wis, Wis, Wisconsin. I mean, you know, what 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 can you what what can you find by just by just by just looking in, into the history of your 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 own town? Well, yeah. you can go down to the Barnes and Noble and pick up a copy of Weird Delaware, Weird Maryland, and Weird Pennsylvania. Or I suppose if you don't live in Delaware, then you, it would be Weird something else. Um, <laughs> but there's certainly a certainly a body of literature on the topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like I said, the real strength of Duralet is kind of bringing in those real life uh, legends and. You know, I mean, the, the, the Wendigo Ithaca sort of you know, link is kind of obvious, but I mean, it, it's a lot less obvious to kind of, you know, put uh, Narlathotep in, 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 a, in the middle of a, you know, state forest in Wisconsin. So it, it, it takes a little bit of, um, I guess, uh, chutzpah to be able to, uh, to kind of link up, uh, you know, again, take, take Lovecraft's very detailed mythos and kind of me- mix it up with your own sort of, uh, you know, local legends. Lovecraft's detailed but deliberately not particularly self-consistent mythos mm. and unifying it into this like grand overarching theory. Durlith coined the fr- coined the term Cthulhu mythos. That's right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and it, I, I think you could argue that the only reason Dweller in Darkness exists is because Durlith needed a story for Cthulhu to show up in. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, um, Lynn Carter, who was kind of Durlith's protege, the way that Lovecraft was, um, or the the way that Durlith was Lovecraft's protege. Lynn Carter wrote a bunch of uh, short stories that basically existed to name drop various new great old ones that he had come up with, Cthulhu's sons and um, so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if 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 only uh, Durlith hadn't hadn't come up with the idea of tying the great old ones to the to the uh, Greek elements um it, it it might have made for a better cause cause cosmology but i mean it mm. yeah, yeah i mean it, it it definitely works in in uh dungeons and dragons where where the elements are a big are a big thing i i really would have loved it if uh he had gotten it wrong and the story ended disastrously like no i i didn't get Cthulhu's elemental you know orientation correct uh, he's actually not going to be able to burn everything down, and all of a sudden you have this huge disaster where there's two great old ones coming for you, and mm-hmm. that's the last we hear of them. I, I, I would have loved it if his crackpot theory about matching them up to the Greek elements ended up being wrong instead of right. That would have been a, a much cooler ending, and it would have been very subversive of sort of what Durleth was seeking to do. And I, I've got to imagine some post-Durleth author probably made a story that ended that just that disastrously for those reasons. Well, I mean, I don't we, don't, we don't even know what what happened to these guys after the last word of this, of this. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. It just, it just ends with, with the, with the fire guys. Sh- and then up they were and all then... eaten by fire vampires. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I kind of, to me, that is maybe the chintziest part of that mythos. And we saw it the last time we talked about Durleth a little bit too, about, um, well, this one's a water God and this one's an air God and so on. I mean, man, they're, a good author can come up with plenty of reasons for these great old ones to not like each other and to not cooperate with each other mm-hmm. besides just that they're, they're different colors on the magic color wheel or whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I love me some, some classic elementals. They're, they're fantastic and they're, they're, they're evocative, but they don't, they don't really mesh well with, with, 
with the mythos. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah it might work better if there were like alien and inhuman elements that they corresponded to. Uh, instead of the familiar Aristotelian one. Yeah, I was, see, I was thinking that. I feel like it 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 sticks them inside our world too much. Yeah, you know, it makes them distinctly less otherworldly. Just if it was them. more, if they were more like quarks, right? You have strange and beautiful and top, <laughs> up and down, spin up, spin down. Yeah, they're they're definitely different teams and they're in opposition to one another but they're they're all alien concepts well did they did they know about quarks no that was much later in 1944 but but i gotta tell that's that's the one the one the one the one problem in my plan yeah (laughs) but again again that links up with the whole thing about science all of its you know uh, suppositions breaking down in the in the early 20th century i mean you're right Lovecraft avoided that just by saying that these things were so incredibly impossible for the human mind to understand. And, you know, you can, you know, I think you can say that's partially a cop out, but thing is like, that was something that people who were learned and were into science and science fiction at this point would have known about, or at least can be able to conceive the fact that all of a sudden things don't work exactly the way we know to go back to sort of Greek, you know, sort of, platonic essentialism or aristotelian essentialism is kind of um you know it, it's kind of a weird step backwards but it's it's Durleth kind of afraid to go that extra mile and just admit that things are, are are just impossible for the human mind to understand and you know that's the one one thing that links all these stories together is like these protagonists are eager to understand even when they know the risks and and again with, with the exception of a few little sanity snaps they don't end up paying the price at all, which, you know, again, we can compare that to Lovecraft's, you know, over it. But I, I think that overall, Durlet's protagonists end up kind of coming out of these things mm-hmm. a little bit le- less scathed than, uh, you know, other uh, Lovecraft stories. Well, you can't really have a Dungeons and Dragons game that where player character, all the player characters are dying every session. Uh, it's much better to have the threat of death hanging over them. And you know, similarly, it's certainly a lot more playable to have the Durlithian uh, protagonists worry about losing their sanity mm-hmm. uh, without actually losing their sanity. Mm. I, I, right. I take it as a sign that we are moving closer to the time when the stars are right, because Lovecraft says at, at that time humans would become like, like the great old, old ones. And if, if we have humans who are wielding uh, the powers of the mythos and standing in the presence of, of gods and they're, and they're not very, very uh, shaken, then uh, that just means the, the uh, end is nigh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, those beings wouldn't lend power to humans if it didn't serve them in some way. I mean, that's the whole, you know, why, why have a cult of all these, you know, horrible ant like beings, but it must do something for them. It must give them some kind of, um, you know, way of making the stars come right quicker. That's right. Yeah, it's. I think I feel like it's one of Durleth's kind of weak points is that um, he does not seem to really consider the question of why are the bad guys, whoever they are, why are they doing what they're doing? Mm. Uh, no, I mean we 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 had that problem with uh, some of some of Lovecraft's villains, like you know, it, especially Joseph Kerwin. Why is he doing any of this? 
but I mean, Shrewsbury, uh, to go back to House on Kerwin Street for a second, Shrewsbury is an exception to that, at least because he's clearly uh, acting as, you know, sort of Earth's Sorcerer Supreme and holding off the what he sees as threats to uh yeah, human life. Mm. Yeah, his MO is very clear. Find places where there are potential gates, blow those places up, repeat. And that's yeah. his, so his, his motivation, at least, is clear in a way that... What exactly are the cultists hoping to get, the ones that he blows up? Yeah, not really clear. That's right. Well, if, I, if I ever meet a cultist, I'll, I'll, ask him, uh, I'll ask him why he joined the cult and what he's hoping to get. Mm. <laughs> All right. Any do we do we have uh, any any final thoughts on these two stories, or on Durlith in general, or on uh, Wisconsin cryptozoology, or or, or or any of the other topics that we've brushed upon? I, yeah, I have a question for Mike, real quick. Yes. Yeah, Mike, this is your first time with us doing this, and you mentioned mm-hmm. in our conversation before the show started that you live in New England, and but you also spent some time living in the Wisconsin area, like just outside yeah. of Wisconsin. Is that right? That's right. Do these do these stories get the feel right? I mean, here's the thing. I, I you know when I, when I read a like a Lovecraft story, like. Um, uh oh geez i'm forgetting the title but the the one that takes place in insmith um shadow over insmith shadow over insmith right you know that one you know you can tell lovecraft has has walked those streets and has you know of marblehead or or swampscott or anywhere on the on the north shore of of massachusetts evil gloucester yeah there you go evil gloucester exactly but like (laughs) i don't think durleth really get i mean his his Arkham could be anywhere. I mean, he talks about the fog coming off of the um, off of the river and everything, and it it's fine. But he he really does when he talks about Wisconsin, he really really brings it home. And I, I I mean, I'm not saying you have to stick to where you grew up, but it's obvious that given the other stuff that wasn't fantastic fiction that Durleth wrote, you know, he 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 spent a lot of time in historical archives. He wrote for the uh, like the Wisconsin Historical Society's newsletter multiple times. I mean, you know, he he obviously has a deep, deep knowledge there. Um, yeah. I don't think he he evokes, um, you know, Arkham as well as uh, he does Wisconsin. Sure, sure. But well, I will, I'm, I'm, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but I will say that, you know, it's really impossible. I mean, I've, I've been to a Necronomicon a couple of years ago. They had the walking tour where you kind of walk through Lovecraft's Providence and and you know, again, the the love that Lovecraft had for old things, for the things that his Yankee ancestors had, you know, had done in New England, you know, that's all that that's his sort of you know specialty area. That's his, you know, most uh, he, he's the most capable of describing those things. And I sure. and I think it you know it definitely shows. So Lovecraft gets the feel of New England. Right, you think? I, I think so. Yeah. I, I don't. I'm, I don't know if he gets the rural settings quite right. I think he definitely, you know, uh, traffics in some stereotyping there. But when it comes to just, you know, getting a sense of the streets of places like Boston and Providence and Salem, he he really, you know, he 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 spent a lot of time there, and you can tell. Sure. Well, that's what I wanted to know because I, you know, when when you mentioned that in our pre-recording discussion that we had i thought to myself i want i'm gonna make sure i ask him that question because for me i live in memphis and uh for me the, the author john grisham 
nails what it feels like to live mm. in the South in his books. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my, my, my friends from other parts of the world, I just tell them, read John Grisham novels. You will understand the feel and vibe of Southern culture. And, uh, and I just wondered what your experience was in light of these books. Yeah, I, again, I think for Lovecraft, since he was such an antiquarian, obviously, and, and his stories are set almost 100 years ago at this point, you know, it's very tough to kind of feel like Lovecraft did in, you know, sure. Boston again. But but uh, just in terms of the, the weight of history here, I mean, you know, New England being one of the most, you know, sort of the oldest continually settled by Europeans part of the North of, of North America, you, you definitely get a sense that he gets that weight of history really, really well. Cool. Cool. Have you have you ever been in Wisconsin and heard the sound of wind but didn't see see the trees moving? Boy, I, I could answer that with any number of uh, of, of snarky uh, answers about the time or the couple of times I went to Gen Con when it was still in Milwaukee, but I'm gonna pass <laughs> on that. Uh, but we shouldn't we should also not forget this is appendix N. This is all about the appendix of the DMG. Um, you know, D and D came from Wisconsin. D&D came from that Midwestern sort of milieu. So, yes. um, you know, I, I, I wonder I wonder how much I mean, Gygax obviously was the main person who put all these books in the appendix. But I wonder if he was a Durlith fan. I don't know if you guys have talked about that at this point, but it seems like he's a, a, a big name and a native son of Wisconsin when it comes to literature. So, oh, I mean, it it. Uh, Durlith clearly had a major influence on on Dungeons and Dragons, and and he's, yeah. he's he's one of the twenty names that pops up in in a in Appendix N. So I would I would say that certainly Gygax was a was a fan. I would be really curious to see if he ever talked about him in an interview or anything like that. Well, sadly, that I think interesting yeah. to dig up. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I know I know that there's been talk of like a documentary and I think there was a mm. lawsuit over the documentaries and it's, it's kind of in, in limbo <laughs> can, right now. Can, so. can anything Gygax related not be involved in some kind of 35 year old lawsuit is the question. At this I mean, maybe point. At, at, yeah. at, at this point, your best bet would be to go to uh, Gary Khan and, and ask one of his sons or, or oh, sure. grand, yeah. grandsons. I think that that's the only way you're going to get an answer at, at this point. Final story I'm going to tell. When I went to, I, when I lived out in Rockford, Illinois, which is right near the Wisconsin border, there was a local con there that EGG actually attended, and um, yeah, I was pretty, I was, I, you know, I was in my you know, sort of early twenties, and I'll tell you something. I, I saw him a table over. He was eating a Subway sandwich, and I've always been able to like brag about the day I saw Gary Gygax eating a sandwich. It was one of, <laughs> one of I didn't talk to him. I didn't walk up to him and shake his hand. I just wow. And him. here we are on a podcast interviewing a guy who once saw Gary Gygax <laughs> eat a sandwich. This is what I'm telling you, Jeff. This is exactly That's what sweet. I'm saying. Listener, listener, you're hearing us talk to a guy. <laughs> <laughs> who saw Kerry Gygax eating a sandwich? There you go. Now, there you go. Jeff and Jeff, like... did I ever tell you guys that I had dinner with Kerry Gygax one night? <laughs> well, that's seriously. <laughs> that's much better than my story. Yeah, yeah. I thought that would have come up at some point. Yeah. Why? Why before. didn't you ask him his thoughts on August Derleth? <laughs> <laughs> well, seventeen-year-old me didn't take the best advantage of that situation, oh, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I... that's clearly what I should have asked him about. <laughs> I, I was a little starstruck, I will be honest. Actually, the guy who used to run our local hobby store um, was actually a, a, a sort of peripheral uh, member of the sort of original 1970s group. 
uh, here in Boston in Malden, Mass. I forget his name, but he he was from Wisconsin and he was he was maybe not part of the core group, but he was definitely in that circle. And so he would tell some stories. So, again, for somebody like me who was 12, 13 years old and just getting into D&D, that was like, you know, that was catnip. That was unbelievable. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, I, I think we've uh, we've reached the end of our of our time. Uh, so unless there's any final, final comments. I could talk gaming with you guys all day, but we should probably we should probably wrap it up. I could talk Gary Gygax eat the sandwich all day. But. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you can you, you can go on uh, one of the Tome shows, uh, other 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 uh, programs. Yeah. I'll give I'll give Jeff G your your email address if he wants to like in, invite you to something. Just call into the Tome Show biz line with the story of how you saw Gary Gygax eating the sandwich. Well, could you tell what kind it was? No, no, I couldn't. Mm. I was just too far away. No, no, no. Uh, Our Mike, listener is going to love that. Mike, <laughs> Mike Grasso, is there anywhere on the internet where listeners can find you? There are so many places on the internet you can find me, but I'll just give you my Twitter handle, which is Museum Michael, all one word. No underscores or anything. Uh, that's my Twitter. I talk a lot there about what I do in museums. I talk a lot about the podcasts that I host. And I link to a lot of my stories on a site called wearethemutants.com, which is a, a site full of Cold War era pop culture, um, occult media, uh, you know, science fiction, fantasy, all that stuff. So definitely check out wearethemutants.com for uh, some of the best uh, we have to offer. Well, be be careful you don't get sued by Marvel because I think they own the word mutants at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll have to bring all of our evidence into court that we can actually <laughs> use it because we've got a, a sort of whole whole story about where that inscription came from. But yeah, uh, Museum Michael is my uh, Twitter, so definitely check me out there. All right, Lewis, where on the internet can people find you if they if if they can? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter at Rev, R-E-V, Lewis Brenton, L-O-U-I-S-B-R-E-N-T-O-N. And I also do writing a little bit at lewisbrenton.com. And Jeff Wickstrom, where can people find you? Well, as you know, I used to have a website at jeffwik.com, jeffwick.com. Uh, it still exists. I just haven't updated it in I don't remember how long. And as always, maybe I'll update it sometime soon. And if not, you can go there and read uh, comedic retellings of the story of King Arthur, um, which are great, let me tell you. And on Twitter, I am at Jeff underscore underscore Wick, J-E-F-F underscore W-I-K, uh, which I am trying to use more um, to limited success. Twitter does not come naturally to me. I don't know what all you people are doing. I don't, I don't think Twitter comes naturally to, to anyone over, over the age of 30. Um, so anyways... You can find me, Jeffrey Wynn, on Twitter at Jeffrey D. Wynn. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-D-W-I-N-N. And I'm also on Instagram with the same handle. You can email me by emailing thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put Appendix N in the subject line so they get it to me. If you're looking for lost tomes of forgotten lore, your first stop should be your local used bookstore. But if you can't find what you're looking for there, be sure to use the Amazon affiliate link on our website, thetomeshow.com, when you shop on Amazon.com. The Tome Show gets a few pennies to pay the bills, and we sure do appreciate it. 
Very soon, we will be discussing Adept's Gambit, a Fawford and Grey Mauser novella by Fritz Leiber. You can find it in the collection Swords in the Mist. Next month, we will be looking at another novel by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt called The Carnelian Cube, a story about a little red stepping stone to adventure. And then in May, we will be reading and talking about What Mad Universe, a novel by Frederick Brown. Hope you'll join us for some fun discussions and send us your comments. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 40, The Dweller in Darkness and the House on Kerwin Street by August Derleth. Thanks for listening. We're friends. We're friends. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah, well, I'm in I'm in the chapter of life where I've got a 17 year old, a 14 year old, oh. a 12, and a baby. And 17 and 14, and I played eight hours of Dungeons and Dragons yesterday because I'm oh. on vacation. Ooh. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That that sounds awesome, but also exhausting. <laughs> yeah, old dad's getting old. <laughs> How many hours? Eight hours. Eight hours. Oh, I mean that's I that's a that's a typical Saturday for me. <laughs> it's not for me anymore man i tell you there was in the younger days sure but uh these yeah. days holy cow say, back in high school we pulled more than one all-nighter playing D I, I i can't believe i did it. It, it looking back on it now i never had that experience oh yeah, yeah we I, I, friday night into saturday basically and then we'd we go would, play street fighter afterwards yeah we would we would go until maybe midnight and then, but like you know, my my players were like, "Oh, I have to study. I have midterms. <laughs> I have paper." Like they were responsible players. I have to go visit my family. <laughs> All the gaming I've ever done has pretty much has been in three to five hour chunks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very well, that's much more than the that. norm, uh, especially with my with the group I'm in now in my mid forties. Uh, I I run the game, and it the group is. My two sons, who are 17 and 14, and then my best friend, who's a bit older than me, and his adult daughter. She's in her low 20s. So that sounds very Gygaxian. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's multi-generational, awesome. yeah. Yep. Very much so. All right, should we get the show uh, underway? Um, uh, yeah. Mike, Mike, what, what exactly – so you, you just want to, like – Lecture us about uh, Wisconsin cryptozoology. Is that (laughs) Mike is a ringer? Basically, he's a I consider him a subject matter expert that I've recruited. Oh, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, I I just I I don't want to make it all about that, but I have some stuff to say about it. I actually did live in northern Illinois on the Wisconsin border for a few years as well, so I've got some. I've got some firsthand Wisconsin experience as well, but uh, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to kind of have that kind of put a pin in that for a topic at some point. Tonight. We can we can we can do that when we when we talk about uh, Dweller. Dweller, yeah. That, well, you know, a, a small amount of Dweller takes place in Wausau, Wisconsin, which uh, is my wife's hometown. Oh no, kidding! Really? Well, I mean, there's, well, I'm glad there's you really... said that because I didn't know how to pronounce it, so I'm glad you I'm glad you said that. <laughs> there's there, uh, there's not much to talk about with Dweller, so I, I'm happy to let Mike. Uh, Make make that story a little bit more more interesting. You don't think there's a lot to talk about with Dweller? I, I got a lot to say about Dweller. Actually, Excellent. yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it wasn't a bad story, but it was it was like by the numbers Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was okay. painfully yeah, similar in... to uh, re- <laughs> Return of Hastur. Yeah. Beyond... So I mean, in that sense, it's kind of an archetypal uh, Durleth story. 
Uh, which is kind of a shame we're not going to be able to talk about Lurker at the Threshold. Um, it, it, I was thinking about it, and in retrospect, I should have pushed for one of the shorter posthumous collaborations. Um, but... Well, I didn't, I didn't really give much much thought to the stories that I that I picked, and no one really seemed to have any comments. So I, I mean, in retrospect, I should have done more research, Jeff. So, eh. well, hindsight is twenty twenty, yeah. and uh, mm. in retrospect, we should also be talking about like the shuttered room tonight or something like that. But mm-hmm. uh, are you recording, Jeff? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I I am I am recording. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. And if you have any audio problems, I have call recorder on as well. So if you need to patch anything in, I'll keep my files. And if you need them, just let me know. Okay. Good, good. All right. <clears throat> so do we want to talk about Dweller first or uh, House on Kerwin Street? Uh, House on Kerwin Street comes chron- chronologically first. Uh, later, so, right? Uh, uh, House on Kerwin Street I have as being uh, in March and Dweller yeah, they're both in, 44. in November. Oh. For some reason, I had Dweller as being 1941, but it's, it wouldn't be the first time I was off on the date. Uh, well, I I had Lurker as being a short story until I found out that it, that it wasn't, and I also didn't. <laughs> Mistakes were made, and I also I didn't mean, own it. So, I, I you know I gotta say, um, we went to Mardi Gras um, uh, this past couple of weeks ago. Uh, which is in my family, it's a big family get together because everybody, most of my mother's family is uh, based around Alabama. Um, so it's a big kind of like Thanksgiving with extra drinking. Um, but while I was there, I was reading Lurker at the Threshold, and my 17 uh, year old cousin um, comes up to me and he says, Hey, Jeff, what are you, what are you reading? And I tell him I'm reading Lurker at the Threshold by August Erlith and H.P. Lovecraft. And he says, It is any good? And I say, No, it's not. And he says, well, then why are you reading it? (laughs) (laughs) And it turns out there wasn't a good reason. (laughs) Well, this this would be. So you don't like the story, Jeff? Lurker is, it's not very good. Okay. Uh, I think there are interesting things about it, but I wouldn't call it a good story. Gotcha. All right. I'm sorry, Jeff. It's it's just as well that, that, I mean, this would be a great use for the tomes biz line. If you have, uh, if if you just just want to go off about lurker at the threshold, you can call the biz line and leave a three minute uh, message. <laughs> I don't know if I could get it all down to three minutes. I'll have to see. Well, you can you can call multiple times, but all right. <laughs> okay. You're just inviting me to monologue at right. our listener. <laughs> let me let me we I, I can probably splice some of this stuff into the actual show but let me start the podcast yeah. proper by saying uh 